I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s She looked like a million bucks. scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich men because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now, this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You and Me Both is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello. So good to see you in person, so to speak. (laughs) As they say down south, we're glad to be seen and not viewed. (laughs) Well, you know, those viewings can be quite entertaining. I've been to a lot. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, I went to one viewing where I don't know exactly what happened, but a leg shot up. Have mercy. Yeah. Now, (laughs) she was clearly no longer of this world, but there was something that caused that leg to go up. That's right. And I bet you some leg went out (laughs) the door and out the window, too. (laughs) That's right. Help, help. That's right. Oh, mercy. I'm Hillary Clinton, and this is You and Me Both, where I get into some of today's biggest questions with all kinds of amazing people. Some of them I've known for years, others I'm meeting for the first time in front of this microphone. Today, we're talking about faith. For me, it's a deeply personal subject, but it's also something that informs my politics. So I wanted to speak to three people who are exploring questions of faith in powerful ways. I'm going to talk with Krista Tippett, longtime host of a public radio show that I have listened to for years called On Being. And I'll also be talking to actor and comedian Asif Manvi, perhaps best known as The Daily Show's, quote, Muslim correspondent. And now let's get right into it with my friend, the Reverend Dr. William Barber. So I am absolutely delighted to welcome the Reverend Dr. William Barber II. He's not only been a pastor in North Carolina for a lot of years, but he became even better known for organizing the Moral Monday movement He serves as president of Repairers of the Breach, one of my favorite biblical phrases. He co-chairs the Poor People's Campaign, which is intentionally 
a reminder of the work that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was doing when he was murdered. He was awarded, you know, one of those MacArthur Genius uh, <laughs> grants. While I was in jail, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine? Hey, Barbara, you got a call? That's how it happened. <laughs> That's exactly how it happened. I was in, in handcuffs, sitting on the bus, paddywhack. Yeah. And they started talking on the bus and said, you just, I, what? <laughs> <laughs> well, your life has been one interesting and challenging experience, my friend. But I want to start really at the beginning. Uh, both of your parents uh, were ministers, weren't they? And in addition to their faith work, they helped to desegregate schools in North Carolina. How did your childhood shape your faith? Well, thank you so much, um, Secretary Clinton. And uh, that's my Southern way coming out. You know, we talk to say, yes, ma'am, Secretary Clinton. I might get around to saying Hillary, but it's just uh, a thing because I'm okay. from the South. <laughs> um, <laughs> my parents, my father was a minister. My mother was a minister of music. She's a concert pianist who spent a lot of time training young students. She's still living. Uh, just retired recently from the school she desegregated after more than 52 years of service. Uh, she's a real feisty woman. She, I asked her after 50 years, why don't you retire? She said, first of all, mind your business. And the second <laughs> thing is, she said, when I came here, they didn't want me here. Now I'm going to stay here till I feel like leaving. Uh-huh. And, you know, my parents accepted a call to come from Indiana back home, my father's home. They were actually called on by a black principal who was trying to prepare for desegregation. Now, this was in the mid-60s. Mm-hmm. And schools are still not desegregated in eastern North Carolina. So basically, we were living in violation of the law. I was taught that there was no separation between Jesus and justice. Mm-hmm. Now, having said all of that, my father was more progressive than a lot of people in the church. Like Dr. King, he faced some isolation. And I decided at an age I didn't really want to have anything to do with ministry. I would be in church, but not ministry. I told my daddy, I might be a good deacon, but I want to reserve the right to tell people just what I feel. Yes, <laughs> and, all, yeah. and pastors can't always do that because we still <laughs> have to minister. And so I went to school to be a lawyer. And in my junior year, I received a real sense of calling. And when I told my father about it, he said, come home, let's talk. And we went on a four-hour drive and just talking about whether or not I could do better inside the formal church or outside the formal church and wrestled through that. And then I preached my trial sermon uh, in March of 1984. The day I preached my trial sermon, some people came to me and said, oh my goodness, you're such a great preacher. Our church has an opening. My daddy looked at me and took me home. He said, you better not even think about it. He said, you're going to seminary. So I mm-hmm. finished my senior year at North Carolina Central as student government president and so forth and went straight to seminary, Duke University Seminary in 1985. You know, to say that Jesus and justice are the same thing seems to me to be so obvious. I mean, how can you be a Bible reading person, a church attending person, and not understand how profoundly true? that, you know, simple phrase really is. And yet you've spent decades now preaching and being an activist. How are you trying to open up people's minds and hearts to understand what Christianity should mean and what should be expected of us who claim to be followers of Jesus? Well, let's prosecute case a little bit mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and do a little, little theology and admit from at least Western culture and American culture, we have two great problems that have affected and infected theology in a bad way. Um, And that is the genocide of First Nation people and the enslavement of African-Americans that were all rooted in racism. And interestingly enough, the exclusion and oppression of women, right? Now to do those three things, there had to be or misinterpretation of scripture, because you're right. If you read the Bible, there are over 2,000 scriptures in the Bible that talk about how you should do justice, 
how you should treat the least these, how you should treat the poor, the sick, the children, the women, and the immigrant. Jesus started his ministry to the poor, his public ministry, his first sermon, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor. And the word for poor there is patokos. It's one of three words in Greek. That word patokos literally means those who have been made poor through political exploitation. Then when Jesus is dying or preparing to die, he said, the nations will be judged by when I was hungry, mm -hmm. when I was sick, when I was an immigrant. The text I said, did you welcome me, right? Now, how is it that so many folk claim then to be quote-unquote Christians, but then have been anti-immigrant, anti the freedom of black people, anti the uh, liberation of women, anti-treatment of indigenous people, right? Well, in order to do that, somebody had to twist the scriptures. Mm -hmm. So one of my professors said, to be a Christian, to be born again, sprinkled, whatever you call it, and to claim the Holy Spirit is to have a quarrel with the world's systems of injustice. And if whatever you claim you have doesn't produce a quarrel with injustice, then your claim of it being the Spirit with the big S is suspect. When you think about the very deliberate, concerted effort by one political party to basically try to own Christianity, and it overlooks the role of the African-American church. It overlooks, as you say, a lot of theology, a lot of history. It also overlooks this moment in time. You know, Black Lives Matter, I view as, you know, very profoundly a theological statement. It is. Uh, and, and when you think about what's happening in our country right now, do you see that maybe we are finally going to have the moral reckoning that has been distorted and perverted and postponed for so long? Mm. You know, I'm thinking a lot about that question because, first of all, historically, you know, not we had slaveholder religion, but we also had Frederick Douglass. We had the religion of the slave. We had the religion of the abolitionists. Let's not forget that. Yep. Diverse people coming together to fight against racism is not new. You know, you yes, you had the racism uh, in the South, but alongside that, you had Dr. King and so many others who, who preached the gospel of justice and liberation. So that we've always had these two streams, if you will. Now, I hope so when you say that about um, this moment that we're in. And I think it, it, it will be a continuation because in every age has their Edmunds Pettus Bridge, right? Every generation has their moment. Uh, we've had two reconstructions. The one between 1868 and 1896, and then we had the second Reconstruction, 1954 to 1968. And I think America needs a, is in the third Reconstruction. I think mm -hmm. this is the birth pains of it. When I see all of the organizing, the, the thing, things that are happening in climate, the, the Black Lives Matter, the Poor People Campaign, uh, the women's movement that's standing, all of these things coming together. But in this moment, when George Floyd was killed, assassinated, strangled, lynched on a sidewalk. That young girl that kept that camera is the real hero because mm -hmm. she forced us to see it, just like Emmett Till's mama forced us to see his death. Now, the question is, though, is all that we see in the street just about that? And I say it respectfully, I don't think so. And the reason is because that happened also during a time of COVID when we have a lot of death going on and we find out 70, 80% of people didn't have to die if we'd done the right thing. On top of that, we have 700 people dying a day from poverty, even before COVID. So there's a lot of hurt. So I think that when people saw this death and they saw it enacted or carried out by the state, the state is not supposed to kill you. Life is what the state's supposed to protect. And when he said, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, I think internally and spiritually, a lot of people took that as shorthand for how all many people are feeling. Those workers being forced to go into work in lethal environments without protection. I can't breathe. People who are dying in hospitals that shouldn't even be dying. What are the, probably their last words? I can't breathe. And so there's a sense in which, uh, Secretary Clinton, that the country, that all this movement in the street and all of this coming out is like the democracy trying to breathe. Establishment of justice trying to breathe, providing for the common good, promoting general welfare, trying to breathe, saying something's not right here. And I think this moment can be 
a moment where we come to terms, not just with systemic racism as it affects black people, but systemic racism in all of its uh, manifestations against brown people, against First Nation people, but also systemic poverty and ecological devastation and the war economy and the false moral narrative of religious nationalism. This is a moment. If we don't miss the moment, if we match our policy decisions to the morning we see in the street, and if we don't treat this as a spectacle event, rather than recognizing this is a call for reconstruction, this is a moment that we can fundamentally shift, but it's going to require a lot of shift. It's going to require politicians to shift. It's going to require people that may run for office to be moderate, to recognize we're not in a moderate moment. We're in a reconstruction moment. We're in an FDR moment. We are not in normal times. And God help us if we blow this moment. That's where I, where I feel about it. We're taking a quick break. Stay with us. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever 
you get your podcast. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am, like I am, where it is. This isn't going to work. I I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of times you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. How do you see now? what the church should be doing, because a lot of people are leaving the church. A lot of young people are leaving the church, in part because the way they understand what Christianity has become is, you know, so judgmental, so alienating uh, that they think to themselves, well, I don't need that. I don't want to be part of that. So this should also be a time for the church to take a hard look at itself and try to figure out how it can be a real partner in this moment of moral awakening. So there's a book that I, when I studied my doctoral degree at Drew University, it was in pastoral care and public policy. And one of the books that was read said that you do not care about your people from a pastoral perspective if you are not willing from a prophetic perspective to challenge the systems that make them have the problems that need pastoral counseling in the first place. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So in this moment, we have to stop separating the two. You know, a lot of young people are leaving so-called white evangelicalism. And I was told when we started working with young people, you know, you're not going to be able to be a preacher because they're not, they don't like that. I said, no. I said, what they don't like is this bland form of religion that tells them all religion is about is just praying and wishing for stuff. Young people are very open to faith that is about transformation, about love, about justice, about equality, about the essence, the essence of what it means to be people of faith. And I think we have to be engaged. There's no way in the days in which we live, the church can stay quarantined inside of the four walls of a building (laughs) because that's never what it was intended to do. You know, I've made a pact with some pastors, for instance, and we've said, if anybody in our church dies from the lack of health care, we're going to do just like Emmett Till's mama, called the media in and said, this is what bad government policy looks like. And, and we're going to say, how in the world can you claim to follow Jesus, who if he did anything, he, he healed everybody free and he never charged a leper or copay. So how <laughs> in- <laughs> no, never charged a leper or copay. <laughs> I mean, really, how, now how do you claim to follow <laughs> And, and I mean, it makes absolutely no sense. See, in our movement, in the Poor People's Campaign, what's attracting people is three things. The counterintuitiveness of it, people coming together, coal miners from Kentucky, black folk from the Delta. Number two, that we are showing the interlocking connection of the injustice. And young folk get this. They love it. They, they love the moral fusion when you connect the dots because they understand that. And then number three, what's attracting them is the teaching. In other words, what I mean by that is when we go in a room and say, did you know there are 140 million poor and low-wealth people? And they mm-hmm. said, what? Mm-hmm. And did you know that 66 million of them are white? Did you know about Joseph Stiglitz's book, The Cost of Inequality? They said, what, about The Cost of Inequality? Not what does it cost to fix it, but what's the cost of leaving it the same? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when folks start hearing those numbers and realizing that it doesn't have to be, that these are choices, then they are actually empowered and they are drawn in because if it's a choice to do it, then we can unchoose. Absolutely. We can choose something different. You know, this year has been a tough year for so many uh, of our fellow Americans. There's so much that has gone wrong, not only the ravages of the pandemic, but the economic devastation, the lost jobs and livelihoods, some of which are not going to come back. Mm -hmm. Uh, a terrible sense of just confusion and 
loss at the core of our national identity. Would you just say a few words to all of these people who are struggling? You know, how can they keep the faith? How can they regain the faith? How can they understand that, you know, Jesus and justice mean the same thing if only we are liberated from a political, short-sighted, oppressive religion, and once again, you know, our fellow seekers? How would you, you know, address those who are really hurting right now? Well, I think that several things. Number one is, I'm reminded of the words of Frederick Douglass when the Dred Scott decision came down in 1850s, and everybody said it was over. That's it. There's nothing we can do. Slavery is, is going to be what it is. And he was invited to speak to a women's group in May. And Frederick Douglass said, this decision is monstrous in all of its considerations. But you need to know that every attempt to ally our movement has only served to embolden and intensify our agitation. And what if this moment of pain is a necessary link in the breaking of the chains of oppression? I think we have to remember that people have come through some very, very despairing situations before. And when people ask me, am I optimistic? No. Am I hopeful? Yes. But it's the hope that has to come through the despair. I think the third thing is to recognize that a lot of what we're seeing, even with COVID, is not God-made, it's human ineptitude. And if humans, as James Baldwin said, messed it up, I paraphrase, then, then we can fix it. The next thing is remember in history that it was after the swine flu, after all that pain that Franklin Delano Roosevelt and the New Deal, there is an mm. after after this. Mm-hmm. So I say to folks, in this moment, don't give up. Join up. Join a movement. Join like the Four Peaks campaign. Because every time people have come together in the most difficult moments, whether it was Frederick Douglass, uh, Harriet Tubman, Lucretia Mott, the coming together, they were able to fundamentally shift the direction of history. History is not set. We can affect history. Is it hard? Yes. Uh, is it going to be challenging? Yes. So some of us have decided to say this, Secretary Clinton, that if, if right now in this moment, within 48 hours, any one of us could be on a ventilator breathing our last breath, if that's the possibility in this moment, then what are we going to do with it? Well, one of the things we can do with it is say, if I knew I only had two days to breathe, what mm-hmm. kind of world would I fight for with my last breath? What kind of mm-hmm. love? What kind of grace? What kind of truth? And then start living like that. All of us. We might live 48 more years. But in this meantime, and I do mean meantime, M-E-A-N, mean. in this meantime, yeah. <laughs> right, that we decide that we are not going to join with the means, that we're right. going to use our last breath and everything we have, our activism, our voting, our conversation, our building community, because I don't have any breath to waste. And if I'm going to honor the people who have died and lost their breath, then the only way I can honor them is to use the breath I have to fight for a better world that would not have cost them their life. And I think if we do that, we can, in fact, hew out of this great moment of despair, as King would say, a stone of hope. We can be repairers of the breach. We really mm-hmm. can be repairers of the breach, and we can be a movement. Now, it's going to mean we must push, push. And sometimes that's going to mean your friends are not going to like it necessarily, but it's better to be pushed by a friend to be made better. Black and white and brown and red and yellow and gay and straight, trans, whoever we are, we are this movement. And the last thing we can do is just die. No, we can't. You are a man after my own heart, my friend. Yep. I mean, that's how I feel every day. And I cannot tell you how much I have loved having this conversation with you. And for those who have listened who want to hear More from Reverend Dr. William Barber. His sermons at his church are streamed live on Facebook, but there are so many other ways you can find him, his writings, his speaking, his incredible work of purpose and mission on behalf of uh, forming, as our mutual friend John Lewis would say, a beloved community, a community in America that finally lives up to our 
our values, and our faith. Thank you so much, my friend. It's wonderful having this chance to talk with you, and I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you so much. If you're looking for more wisdom from Reverend Barber, pick up a copy of his new book, We Are Called to Be a Movement. Nearly two decades ago, Krista Tippett recognized that most Americans have a hard time talking about religion and spirituality outside of places of worship. So she started a conversation that continues to this day, not only with religious leaders, but with everyone from poets to physicists. I am so excited to dig into this topic with her. It's just a sheer delight to have this chance to talk with you, Krista. Oh, well, it's an honor and really a delight to be here. I particularly resonate to a saying of your describing your own work that I read, uh, where you seek to address what you call a black hole where intelligent public conversation about the religious, spiritual, and moral aspects of human life might be. Yeah, Krista, talk to me about how you see this present time. Are we filling the black hole? Are we ignoring it? Uh, Hmm. Where is the opportunity for what I think is a much-needed spiritual reckoning um, about what it means to be human and trying to be more focused in how we live uh, the life we are given, both alone and in company. Yeah. Well, I do agree with you that, as I've watched this moment, I feel that it has brought into relief, it has surfaced that the questions before us have deep moral content and, and in fact, are about, you know, the soul of our nation. And we still have to develop the muscles and the mm-hmm. language mm-hmm. and the practices, public practices, to take those things on together. But I think more of us are aware that that's what we're called to do. Um, and theology does have a contribution to make as part of the human enterprise. Um, what does it mean to be human? How do we want to live? And who will we be to each other? Those questions are so alive in our life together right now, between our pandemic and our racial rupture and awakening. I mean, I am really turning now to... Words and practices that I feel, again, like I would say, have to, are offered up to all of us as part of the human enterprise of contemplation, of repentance, of redemption, of healing. Of I was talking to some rabbis the other day about lamentations, right? Like in that tradition that lamentations is supposed to be a public practice. And I don't know about you, but that word I, lands so... Um, with relief in me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I want to lament, right? <laughs> I need to lament, and I want to lament with others. And instead, we're just so good at all the other... We leap over lament, and we point fingers, and we blame, and we yell, and we get mad. And there are these other places in us that these traditions are the bearers of, not the only bearers of, but I, I feel like they are great resources and companions for now. I wish there were a way, as we think about the time we're living through right now and how necessary it is for people to slow down, to take a deep breath, to think about their lives and the lives of those around them, to maybe explore some of the spiritual and religious practices and the and the and the great questions that um haven't gone away just because we don't address them. I'm with you. I you know, my quick definition of spiritual life is befriending reality. Hmm. Uh, unpack that for us. Unpack that. That's great. To befriend reality, which means all its complexity, mm. right? We are all so complicated, and our life together is so complicated, and all of these challenges that we face are so complicated. But resisting that complexity 
doesn't get us where we want to go. And I think when I say that, befriending reality, also what I mean by that is that these traditions, Christianity, Buddhism, Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, they contain not just conversation and wisdom across time and generations about who God might be or what transcendence is, but this matter of being human, the complexity of being human. And so much of what the traditions have taught and cultivated is now being borne out in our disciplines of neuroscience and and social psychology. So, you know, one of the things we're learning is the corrosive effect that fear has when human beings are afraid, we are literally unable to rise to our best selves, right? It's literally too much to ask of somebody. That's right. The system is overwhelmed. Yeah, can't do it. Mm -hmm. If you feel threatened, the feeling of threatened is enough. You may not actually be in danger. So that's reality. And so the pragmatism of these spiritual tools and practices and teachings is that it gives us the power to settle into our best selves. This move of not letting fear dominate, of finding ways to control that in ourselves, to step into our best selves, to transmit to others that that is possible, to move through the world that way, we cannot face the challenges before us. We cannot face how we have distorted ourselves with this construction of race, right? I mean, to name just one of the things that is before us, which, which kind of under, has underpinned so many of the others, if we don't find ways to rise into the best and deepest and most complex aspects of our humanity and character, our moral imagination— Oh, I feel literally thrilled by that phrase, befriending reality, and your description of what it means, what it could mean. That really is just um, truly music to my ears, Krista. We'll be back right after this quick break. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals. 
Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because, God, I can't stay where I am like I am where it is. This isn't going to work. I, I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, if you, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You know, I will say, since I'm here with you, I know, and I, I, I've known this, but I, I hear it in your voice, even, even though you're mostly just asking questions now. But I, I know that this is a huge part of you, the tradition you grew up in, that there is a religious and, and spiritual grounding to your life that I, I assume has evolved because I think if, if this part of life, like anything, if, if you're alive, it's evolving and you have had an adventurous life. And um, I, I just think it must have been, I have thought this before, it must have been frustrating for this, even this part of yourself to not be able to show. Because as we've talked about, there's not a place where the complexity and richness and fullness of this part of us gets honored and has a place to show itself. I don't know if that's a question, but well, no, but I, I take it as a question because it's one that I've thought about a lot. Mm. Um, I was raised as a Methodist. I was raised, uh, you know, going to Sunday school. I had um, a really influential youth minister who took us to a different level of uh, thinking about life and and what it meant to be a Christian, what it meant to be a person of faith. Uh, he was the one who took me as a young teenager to hear Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. speak. Hmm. Um, and he was constantly challenging us uh, with art and poetry and different ways of thinking about the world than the ones we had grown up with in our suburb of Chicago. And so I always believed that faith was a constant in my life. You might hear the rain beating on the top of the roof of my oh. <laughs> my little my little attic office where I uh, am recording this, uh, which seems kind of appropriate. Um, but yeah. it was really difficult to ever express any of these feelings or experiences or even the questions raised by my own faith and my own upbringing and my own searching in my public. Uh, life. For example, when my father died, I had given, you know, several weeks of my time by his, you know, bedside as as he uh, passed away, 
And I was just totally overwhelmed by what we all experience at the death of a loved one. And I had promised to speak at the University of Texas before my father's stroke. And I was trying to get out of it. And the indomitable Liz Carpenter, uh, who had asked me to deliver the speech, said, no, no, Hillary, you got to come. You know, Mm. we filled the field house, tens of thousands of people, you have to come. Well, I had no idea what I was going to say. I I didn't feel up to the occasion, but, you know, I'm a dutiful Methodist person. And so, of (laughs) course, I went. And it was an incredibly emotional experience for me. And I talked about meaning and life. And I remember just being ridiculed by the press. Mm. Um, What right did I have to raise these issues in public? What was a, quote, first lady doing talking about issues of life and death and meaning yeah. uh, and spirituality. It was a very, very difficult um, time in my life. And to feel that I had no public outlet for exploring these issues meant that I just became more personal. And I see. Only so that was about, kind of you, you then decided you needed to keep that in. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it, In terms of a personal experience, it certainly has continued, but I have felt often that, you know, maybe if I could think of a better way of talking about it, a more, oh, understandable and acceptable way, I might possibly make a better impact. But, you know, I, I feel very fortunate that I've had this grounding in faith not just emotionally, but intellectually. Yeah. Yes. Because I have I have fallen back on it, you know, time and time again. Uh, so it it's 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 challenging if you're in the public eye and known for being in the public eye as uh, a political person. There's an acceptable range to talk about uh, religion, uh, but if you go into these deeper questions, the the press and 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 certain elements of the public get immediately anxious about it. Yeah, we just we don't have the we don't have the vocabulary. Yeah. I mean, I think don't, and 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 don't think it's somehow appropriate to have right. this conversation in public. Like, don't talk about this in public, for heaven's sakes. Yeah, I I also think that word you used, searching. Mm. The the crazy thing is that the religion that does get somehow sanctioned uh, is the certainty, right? It's the, yes. It's the doctrinaire. Yes. And that's actually not how people live this. I like you. Just, you described it. It's being. It's your. It's somebody dies. It's like these right. moments in life where right. it doesn't all add up. And that's right. And and nothing else is there. This is where we are turned into our interior existence mm-hmm. and these questions of meaning. That makes so much sense. What you just said, and and it well, feels painful I, to me from yeah. afar. It's painful to hear about. <laughs> Well, thank you again for spending this time with me. Thank you. You can hear Krista Tippett every week. Tune in to On Being from Minnesota Public Radio and PRX. I want to turn now to someone else who has shed new light on the issue of faith, in his case, through humor. Christianity. It's the dominant religion in our country. But did you know it's also in serious trouble? No, it's not gays, not science, not liberal Hollywood. According to Alabama, it's Sharia law. Asif Manvi is perhaps best known for his role as the Daily Show's senior Muslim correspondent. Or alternatively, the senior foreign-looking correspondent. He was also the lead actor and co-writer and producer of the web series Halal in the Family. What a great name. They say if you want to make people think, try making them laugh, and that's exactly what Asif does, all while confronting racism, xenophobia, Islamophobia, and bigotry. And then there's the latest development. This past March, Asif became a dad, and of course, I wanted to hear all about that. So before we get started on all this other stuff, what's your son's name? His name is Ishan Amir Mandvi. My wife is Hindu. 
and I'm Muslim. So we, uh, Sean is a Hindu name, Amir is Muslim, and his initials are I am, which is, uh, you know, Jewish, uh-huh. y- y- Yahweh. So we got all the bases covered, you know. <laughs> a walking advertisement for that. Right, exactly. For, for Religious all, tolerance. All major, major religions, exactly. No, it was, it was actually amazing because we had an interfaith wedding, uh, a Hindu-Muslim wedding, and uh, we had to make it up because, you know, there's a world in which Shefali and I would never have gotten married, you know. That's right. And how did you grow up? I mean, I know you spent part of your uh, childhood in the UK, then yeah. your family moved to Florida. How did it feel to you growing up Muslim in those two settings? Well, you know, I did grow up Muslim and I grew up in a relatively religious home. My grandparents were religious, you know, so Islam was always just part of the DNA of my childhood. You know, maybe not ironically, but interestingly, it didn't really become a thing until after 9-11. <laughs> uh-huh, you know, uh-huh. up until then, I had this religion that felt very private and it felt like it was my thing that I did with my family. We went to the mosque sometimes. We prayed at home, you know. Uh, we went to religious ceremonies and things, but the, it never became something that was looked on from the outside until after 9-11. And then suddenly mm. there was a different relationship to it and suddenly... I was dealing with the explanation of it or having to somehow defend it or somehow, you know, Islam became politicized. But growing up, it just felt like it was a very personal, private thing. And I used it as my own way of connecting with whatever highest spirit, you know, God, Mm -hmm. the universe, whatever that is. Mm Mm-hmm. When you think about politicizing uh, religion and then the Islamophobia that uh, resulted uh, after 9-11, you have been one of the very few high-profile people who have walked right into that. Uh, yeah. You, you, and and I want to I understand your thinking about it because, you know, I'm sure that there were people who said, you know, don't go there, you know, mm-hmm. don't, don't make it an issue. How did you come to grips with what you wanted to do to try to, you know, in your own way, combat what you saw as the politicization and the really demonization in so many different mm-hmm. quarters of uh, Islam? Well, you know, it's funny because I was, well, this is going to, sometimes life just happens to you. And what you do in that moment defines what happens in the next moment. And for me, what happened, I wasn't, trying to be political. I wasn't trying to like be outspoken about it. Even after 9-11, um, I was dealing with it on a personal level, but never in a public forum. And then the Daily Show happened for me. I got this job that I never expected to get. I never was, I wasn't looking for it. It literally happened. I went, I went to this audition, John Stewart hired me, and suddenly I was now the Muslim correspondent on the Daily Show, much to the terror of my parents, who I remember saying, my dad saying to me, listen, if John Stewart ever asks you anything about Islam, you just have him call your mother because you don't know a damn thing. And so, like, and so they were terrified that I was going to be out there, like, just, you know, saying all kinds of nonsense that didn't make any. And then I, what it did for me was, it gave me this platform. And at that time, in 2006, there were not a lot, a lot of people representing in that way that felt like it was truthful. I mean, you had like, you know, the terrorist on 24 or, you know, I mean, I got so many scripts in the aftermath of 9-11 where it was literally the first scene of the movie or the TV show is the towers coming down and, mm. and Muslims cheering and praying. Every script... And so this was the first time there was something where, like, I thought, oh, this is a uh, an actual conversation. Like, we're actually talking about this. And, mm-hmm. and I think that when I got on The Daily Show, I ended up there and I thought to myself, okay, this is what I'm going to end up being. And I realized, like, oh, there was a, a need for it. So I leaned into it. And then I found a voice around it. Then as I stepped into it further and further, I realized, oh, this is, I'm actually 
finding a voice that I had not allowed myself to find. So sometimes it's just about being given the opportunity to express that. And then you realize like, I got a lot to say, you know, I didn't know that I had this much to say around this. Yeah. And let, let me sort of bring this back to both faith, but also fatherhood. So here yeah. you are, a new father, mm-hmm. um, thinking about all that's going on in the world around you. How do you hope the world looks, you know, in five years when he starts school, in 18 years when he graduates from high school? And how do you see how raising your son at this moment is going to play out? Well, I feel, I, I do believe, and, the, and, and you know, maybe this is the glass half full guy in me, which is that I do believe that after a breakdown, there is a breakthrough. And if we're going through some kind of sort of profound breakdown, there is going to be a moment of breakthrough. And I also believe something that I discovered recently, which is the difference for me between faith and belief, you know? And belief is I believe something is going to happen. I believe that I'm going to get that job or I believe that I'm going to, you know, be whatever it is. Faith is understanding that no matter what happens, I have the capacity to move forward and to be okay. And that is something that I feel like I want my son to understand. It's a, it's a much more difficult thing to inhabit, which is this idea that like, I'm going to be, and we will be okay no matter what happens. Mm-hmm. And that is faith mm-hmm. and that, that we cannot be destroyed because faith is larger than adversity, you know? Yes. Yeah. I love that. And I'm with you in hoping that, uh, you know, this breakdown leads through a breakthrough. Yeah. But I just can't thank you enough. I, oh, I've loved, you. loved talking to you. I just wish the best for you and uh, your wife and your son. Thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure. Thanks so much. When he's not changing diapers, Asif Manvi has his hands in many new projects, including a highly entertaining new supernatural drama series called Evil, on CBS. Check it out. You and Me Both is brought to you by iHeartRadio. We're produced by Julie Subrin and Kathleen Russo with help from Huma Abedin, Nikki Etour, Oscar Flores, Brianna Johnson, Nick Merrill, Lauren Peterson, Rob Russo, and Lona Valmoro. Our engineer is Zach McNeese. Original music is by Forrest Gray. If you like You and Me Both, don't keep it to yourself. Tell a friend. You can subscribe to You and Me Both on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, leave us a review. I'd really appreciate it. We'd love to hear from you, so send us your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows at youandmebothpod at gmail.com. Come back next week when we're talking to some amazing women leaders, including the one and only Gloria Steinem. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes... Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich friend, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. 
Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.